Hello and welcome to the Global Insights from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. What is going on in the world, Chuck? Well, I can tell you what's going on where I live in the world. And that is, I am calling you, Claudine, from the enhanced testing area of Shoreditch on the, on the sort of edges of Eastern London. Last week, the NHS, the National Health Service here in the UK, pushed out an alert saying that it had identified the so-called South African and Indian variants of the coronavirus in my neighborhood. The NHS has asked us all to sign up for surge testing. And so I dutifully logged onto the NHS website. I ordered my seven lateral flow or antigen coronavirus tests that were sent to me in two days for free. And everyone in Shoreditch now is meant to be testing themselves and sending their results in to the NHS website. If you test negative, congratulations. If you test positive, you self-isolate. The reason why the NHS is doing surge testing is that the UK does lead the world in the genomic sequencing of the coronavirus. And in a surge area like this, the NHS wants to stay on top of what kind of variants are out in the public. It's really interesting sitting here in the UK, isn't it, while we're we're nervously watching to see what happens as these variants spread as we reopen, at the same time as colleagues in other parts of the world are experiencing very different levels of COVID and responses. I was talking to colleagues in Singapore earlier who are facing a return to lockdown and to the dreaded homeschooling. You know, Claudine, you're right. One way or another, the pandemic still manages to dominate almost any conversation you have with a colleague, with a friend, with a relative. But there are a few places around the world where more basic domestic politics are beginning to reassert themselves and rejoin the conversation. One of the places where domestic politics has come roaring back is Colombia. Claudine, can you open it up for us? Sure, Chuck. Colombia leapt into international news headlines at the end of April when anger about poverty, unemployment and opposition to the government led to protests that turned violent. Colombia was one of many countries which experienced unrest in 2019, fueled by socioeconomic grievances. And now these grievances, intensified by the pandemic, have started fresh disturbances. We are actually noting an uptick globally in levels of protest activity as attention turns away from COVID, as restrictions ease, and as the economic impact of the pandemic starts to bite. In Colombia, protests have already had significant implications from a policy perspective as the government has withdrawn controversial tax plans and is now in dialogue with its opponents. But the crisis is far from over. Claudine, here to help us with that today and dialing in down the line from our office in Bogota is Raul Gallegos. Raul is a general sort of social media star when it comes to issues in Northern Latin America. As his day job, Raul heads our political risk practice for the Andean regions for control risks. He is a 20-year Latin America expert, although he's older than just 20, I have to say. And he is also the author of a book called Crude Nation, How Oil Riches Ruin Venezuela. Raul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Florine, and thanks, Chuck, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure. Raul, let's just do a, a basic intro for listeners who may be new to the story in Colombia. Claudine gave us the overall picture, but tell us, you know, what is the level of tension in Colombia at the best of times, you know, the levels of social cohesion and, and, and civil unrest? What made the financial reforms so controversial? What is the overall state of the economy 
And also, you know, give us a feel. You live in town. You're living and working there on a daily basis. Are you sort of sidestepping protests everywhere you go? Give us a bit of the background. You know, I would say that, you know, the last few weeks or the last month have been obviously very tricky for not only people living in Bogota, but in Colombia in general. In Bogota, we have seen protests that have turned violent, clashes between protesters and the police that have left more than 40 people dead. Bus rapid transit stations have been destroyed. ATMs have been destroyed and looted as well. And similar situations have happened in major cities like Medellin, but especially Cali, where they have blocked access to the city inside and out. And that has been dealt with by the authorities, but also there have been attempts to block logistics of you know, food and other necessary items coming into Bogota, for instance. And we've had three offices of different mayors around the country being burned and looted. So it is a level of anger that is not the usual here in Colombia. We, as you pointed out correctly in 2019, we had protests as did many other countries around the world. And over the last five years, I would say that the practice here in Colombia of various social groups staging protests and strikes, nationwide strikes to try to extract what they want from a standing administration has become, you know, a sort of a common practice, right? For the longest time in this country, because you have armed groups, because you have leftist Marxist guerrillas still running around the country, aside from you know direct trafficking organizations and paramilitary organizations, politicians tended to blame protests on infiltrators, you know, essentially protests staged by these armed guerrillas, right? But after the peace accord signed in 2019 with the largest guerrilla organization, that excuse started to wear a little bit thin. And so social organizations felt that this was the moment to actually press for change because that excuse can no longer be wielded with as much effectiveness, if you will, as it had been used in the past. That's not to say that some of that doesn't exist. Of course, it does. And we can talk about that. And, you know, that there's also evidence that at some point, even Cuban intelligence has had a hand in advising some of these groups as to how to stage protests. Raul, I get the feeling that the streets of Bogota must be crowded with quite a cast of characters. You're either bumping into Cuban intelligence officers, Marxist revolutionaries, or narcotraficantes. How are you getting from point A to point B these days? You know, these days, yes. I mean, moving around Bogota is tricky just because protests have disrupted public transportation. There are areas where you just don't go. And so most people are staying indoors, staying home. On top of the fact that you still have a raging pandemic here, certainly vaccinations are nowhere near where they should be. So yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, these are difficult days. Raul, in the piece that you've written on the controlrisks.com website, you mentioned that this unrest is happening in the build-up to elections in 2022. And we are expecting currently for leftist candidates to do particularly well. You mentioned that it might be the first time in Colombian history that we would actually have two leftist candidates in the runoff. Do you sense that this is a period of really generational change in terms of attitudes and the, and the political environment in, in Colombia? Or is it? do you think it's more of a sort of short-term flare-up reflecting the particular circumstances of the moment? I think to your point, yes. No, we believe this is this is going to be uh, very relevant. I'm not I'm not sure if I would call it necessarily generational change, but certainly a political change that you know is going to be felt for many many years in this country, and it's and it's a change that is worrying not only everyday folks but certainly the business class in this country. This is the second longest 
serving democracy in the region after Costa Rica. And, you know, this is a big deal for a number of investors sitting in places like London or New York. And so for big companies, for Fortune 250, Fortune 500 companies that are looking to invest in the region and work in the region, this is a primary destination for those folks, aside from Mexico and, and Brazil, which have their own problems. It has a lot of people very worried. We see you know, two fractions of the left in this country battling it out. We we have a more moderate left and the more populist, radical left, if you will, led by Gustavo Petro, who is a former guerrilla turned politician who has been extremely popular in this country, especially since he came close to winning the 2018 election and missed it by 2.4 million votes. This time around, you have you know, another four and change million young people who now can vote, who are very progressive in mindset, the vast majority of whom are very poor, and so are not too concerned about, you know, the weakening of institutions that might happen, presumably, under the election of, of Petro. And so they might be more conducive to voting for him. That is one thing that has people worried. I think what you're seeing right now is all the signs that the one that can gain the most from the current dynamic is precisely Petro. I think a lot of people, upper class, middle upper class folks here in, in Bogota don't like to see it that way. They don't even like to think about it. But the reality is that you are seeing a lot of anger in the streets and will surely end up with a leftist president next year. The question is, what kind of leftist president? It sounds as if there might be some implications in terms of the way that the policy environment might change and how much companies will be able to rely on the judiciary and institutions they may become familiar with. Are these going to be manageable? Yes. However, that said, I think, you know, Latin America has always been a place where as a company, you just need to do your homework and you're able to do business. I think for the most part, that is how it is, even with very populist and some would argue even with dictatorial governments. It's just a matter of how you do business, making sure that you don't violate anti-corruption rules and that you are a good corporate citizen while you do business in those places. And I think it's it's going to be no different in Colombia. And I think in even in the case where we have the populist option come up, this is a region and certainly this is a country that after COVID and after the unrest we've seen, we are going to see whoever wins will come to power in a situation where they will have limited amounts of money to spend. They will have to be extremely pragmatic and work with the private sector. So the idea that we are seeing a government that comes in here that will start nationalizing things and essentially ruining the nation, I think it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, you are going to see pragmatism going forward, not only in Colombia, but I think in a large part of the region. We'll continue our conversation with Raul in a moment. But if you enjoy the Global Insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you are missing out. Every week we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. Like our Q1 Core Security Incident Report for 2021, which gives you a global overview of the security situation so far this year. There is a video briefing to go along with the report, which looks ahead at security outlook for Q2. That and more at controlrisks.com. Now back to our conversation about Colombia. Well, we find ourselves sort of complaining a lot in political risk circles about how long most national election cycles seem to be and that we're pretty much just finishing up with one election before we start talking about another one. Is it unusual in Colombia for people to be talking about an election that's still pretty much about a year away? 
Yes and no. I mean, I think I think people tend to, you know, give it a little bit more time before they start worrying about these things. But in the case of Colombia, I think when you have strikes and people running amok and breaking stuff, I think you start worrying about who will benefit from that, especially because the situation in Colombia right now is that the current government in power, which is a center right or very right, depends on who you ask, but, you know, it, it's a right wing government, really. They are very much unpopular. They have lost a lot of support. They are led by a former president who used to be very popular, Alvaro Uribe, who in many ways, you know, regardless of where you stand ideologically, you have to admit that he did things to make sure that he beat back armed groups and, and recovered a good chunk of the, of the territory and could start doing business again. So, you know, this was almost a failed state. And, you know, he did things that sort of rescue the country from being a failed state. However, in that process, he also did a lot of things that people want to essentially throw him in jail for as well. The world is just shades of gray, and that's and that's even more true in Latin America, I have to say. But anyway, having said that, so, you know, he's really unpopular. The young, young people really do not like his party. And so I think that's why a lot of discussion is taking place around the next election, because it's going to be a new reality for Colombia, really. Raul, let's say the power really does shift to the left as a result of the next elections. What is your view of the likelihood of the left being able to come to grips with what's happening in the country and to provide real solutions? I think there are some areas where certainly a leftist government will try to bring improvement, having more of a presence around the country with basic infrastructure, you know, health and whatnot. For folks, that is something that we will likely see. The big challenge for a leftist government is going to be how to handle armed groups. You know, the, the leftist side of the political equation in this country tends to think the dialogue and making nice is sort of the solution. And then you have the right side of the equation where it's all, you know, fire and brimstone type approach. So, you know, we, we are going to see a leftist government that will struggle with how to be forceful enough, but also how to be fair. And that will be challenging because, you know, some of these groups are not your run of the mill. There are no nice guys there. These guys bomb places, they bomb infrastructure, you know, these are these are terrorists in many ways. It will be challenging for a leftist administration to to do that, if you will. It's in the news today that a prominent FARC leader has been killed in, in Venezuela. What's your take on that development and how will that play into what's going on in Colombia at the moment? Yes, Santrich was a sort of a historical leader of the FARC. And by the way, that's an alias. Every major figure in armed groups here has an alias. And so when you do political analysis in this country, you learn pretty quickly that you need to be comfortable with memorizing aliases. Do you know his real name? Um, actually, that's a, uh, I, I'm forgetting right now. That's how that's how alias how entrenched aliases are. <laughs> But anyway, you have a lot of that. And he was a part of a dissident faction of the FARC that signed a peace agreement back in 2016. And a lot of those folks are seeking refuge in Venezuelan territory. Venezuela obviously is happy to have those guys there, if that's a way to anger Colombia, which is sort of a sworn enemy these days. And some of these armed groups actually serve a purpose in Venezuela, helping the Venezuelan regime do all kinds of things, including gold extraction and whatnot. But anyway, apparently there was an ambush that essentially killed this individual and a number of others. We don't know who staged it. At this point, there are reports that supposedly the Colombian military might have done an incursion into Venezuelan territory to do this. But over the last few months, we've seen skirmishes between the Venezuelan armed forces and 
armed groups, Colombian armed groups as well, because, and that's another sort of layer to the onion, in Venezuela, you have the military benefiting from allowing drug trafficking to sort of run rampant across the territory. And so they have alliances with certain groups, but not with others. And so, you know, those skirmishes were essentially Venezuelan military trying to weaken or debilitate or eliminate rival faction of their friends, if you will. So it's a very sort of complex reality across the border. Just at the very beginning of the podcast, we talked about how some countries are actually having the opportunity to return to some of the basics of political risk and geopolitics and the instability that we're seeing in Colombia. Raul, where are we forecasting a little bit of instability like this when it comes to sort of protests, civil unrest and political violence? What are the other hotspots around the world and around the region? Yeah, I would say, you know, in Latin America, certainly the Andean region is bound to be a hotspot. And Peru is one of those places we are going to see an election very soon in the next couple of weeks where Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of sort of the right wing strongman Alberto Fujimori from the 90s, she's now running for president. She is running for president against a relative unknown called Pedro Castillo, a man who favors five gallon hats and Marxist ideology. So anyway, that extreme polarization we're seeing there, in our view, is ripe for more unrest. That is a place where you've seen a lot of the Congress getting rid of a president and then the president getting rid of Congress. The Constitution allows for those things to happen rather easily, which is really scary. And so I think over the next year or so, we are going to see a very tense situation there. To add to that, obviously, Peru is the place where in Latin America, arguably, you've seen the worst of COVID. And then in, in Chile, you have you know constitutional reform. They just elected 155 members of the constitutional reform body, and a lot of them they call themselves independents, but I, I think three quarters of the people elected are very much you know, left of center to far left in a country that prides itself on being relatively conservative. So we are going to see a change in the constitution that again, will probably anger a lot of folks and lead to protests as well. But I think you know, region-wide, I would argue, even Central America and, and other areas of Latin America, you are ripe to see protests because COVID is long COVID here. And this is a region where you don't really have, you know, a lot of vaccination. That's going to take a while. Even here in Colombia, you're probably going to see mass vaccination probably until next year. So people are getting frustrated. People are getting angry. And you are seeing a deepening of inequality and poverty like you haven't seen in decades in this region. Before we go away, we should say thank you very much to Raul Gallegos, who is joining us again from our office in Bogota. I said at the top of the podcast that Raul is a bit of a social media star. You can find him on Twitter at, at Raul E. Gallegos. That is his Twitter handle. It is all one word. Raul runs a website that is raul-gallegos.com and a politics blog called Pondering Politics. Raul, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast. No, it's a pleasure always participating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raul. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis 
and find out how Control Risks helps build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicki Bufton. Many thanks to them. And for me, goodbye for now. And goodbye from me.